AM 1600 KIVA, BQ.FM, Glad to be here with you for another Saturday afternoon edition of Straight Talk with Mr. Jeffrey Candelaria. Normally, Jeffrey Candelaria always gets into the topics of the week uh, with the most interesting people here in the marketplace or on the political place uh, as well. And uh, this week is another opportunity for you to expand your mind uh, with Jeffrey Candelaria's Straight Talk. Jeff, good afternoon. Take it away. Good afternoon, Eddie, and thank you again for producing Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. We're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on 1600 Kiva AM. That's amplitude modulation. Don't forget, download the Rock of Talk app on your smartphone. And I'm excited to have in our presence today, live in studio, Mr. Fred Nathan, he is the executive director and founder of Think New Mexico. It's a think tank. Welcome to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Jeffrey, thank you for having me on. I'm a longtime listener, as you know, on multiple stations and just delighted to be with you here in person. Absolutely. So for our listeners that uh, have heard the term think tank, let's talk about what that construct is to begin with. What is a think tank? And then obviously talk further about what your think tank does. So overall, what is a think tank? You know, it, it really is, I think, a research, a research organization. I think the term think tank uh, dates back to World War II, and they had various research groups, and for whatever reason, they referred to them as think tanks, and then it just got into the common nomenclature, and here we are. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was because at that time, militaristically, um, they would actually bring people of eclectic, diverse backgrounds together in an actual tank or a room, and it was a confined space, and they would actually give them an agenda, try to figure out, you know, 28 strategies to exit or enter Normandy or whatever that might be, and it became almost that sense of we're confined, we're focused, we're here, uh, and undiluted with distraction and i think it did come from that that kind of uh environment you know a tank and all that kind of thing. now now i'm learning something this is good to know <laughs> well, you've got me interested i'm going to go check it out well we we like to uh <laughs> we like to dissect cliches and in, in in terms that we collectively in our society use all the time like when someone uses a an expression like i'm going to give you great service on yeah. this show i'm going to ask you exactly what do you mean by that anyway i digress so what is the mission of Think, uh, Think New Mexico for, for your, for your yeah. constituents? Well, really what it comes down to is, as I think you and your listeners know, we're 49th or 50th in just about every national ranking. And really the idea when we started this was what can we do to, to collectively lift us up in some of these national rankings? And the idea was to try an honest-to-goodness, nonpartisan a policy group, think tank, um, to to try to you know get, get to the root causes of many of these problems and come up with solutions. So I like to say you know most think tanks are either way way over on the left or way way over on the right. You know in a state that's 49th or 50th, we thought maybe we shouldn't focus so much on ideology and instead focus on workable solutions that will you know lift the people up of the state of New Mexico. That's that's my little distillation of that. So one example might be, and we're going to dissect a <clears throat> number of your accomplishments and a number of Think, think New Mexico's uh, objectives, things that you're trying to accomplish over the next year to, to five mm-hmm. years. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me as one example of an issue for New Mexico is 
in workplace environments, New Mexico ranks dead last among all states in terms of percentage of workers who don't have workplace retirement plans. I mean, that's an astounding, uh, pragmatic economic situation that you would, that, you know, most people might assume, well, you know, most people in a professional environment are going to have some kind of a workplace retirement plan of some consequence, even if it's self-directed or part of the company providing that. And again, New Mexico ranks dead last among workers who lack a retirement plan. So having having known this mm-hmm. and you having this as, as something that you've either accomplished, you know, attenuating or, or making a difference in or not, what do you do around an issue like that as an example? So that that, that particular study came about because uh, we, we stumbled across this amazing statistic that in New Mexico, 62% of the adult population has $10,000 or less wow. saved for their retirement. And so, in effect, they're going to try to make it on Social Security alone, which, you know, was created as a supplement to your retirement, to your other sources of income in retirement. And we thought, this is a ticking time bomb. And what can we do? And two ideas, or actually, I'll talk about three ideas that we came up from that, is, first of all, we're one of a handful of states that taxes Social Security income tax. Yeah. It's, it's, in effect, a double tax. Yeah. And when you consider that in New Mexico, we've got 55,000 grandparents who are the primary guardians for their grandchildren, and they're trying to save for their own retirement and provide for their grandchildren, and the state government taxes this not once but twice. Yeah. Because you're already taxed, essentially, when you earn the money. It's usually intercepted before it even hits your bank account. Yeah. And then, the, and since 1990, the legislature uh, back then, there was, um, an, you know, we have a balanced budget amendment, which is a good thing. And uh, that year they were running, I think they were worried that their budget was $11 million out of balance. So in the second to last day, at night, this bill was going through as a, a tax cleanup bill, they just threw in a sentence saying, going forward, we're going to tax your Social Security income. And so it started out as, I think, 11 or $15 million. Fast forward today, it's about $70 million. Yeah. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, we can't afford this. Um, and, and my response is, but what about the people that are paying for it? It's not like they're living large. You know, it kicks in for an individual, I think, at about $28,000. It's the, of the states that tax Social Security income, it's the second harshest tax. Yeah. So that's one thing we want to do, repeal the tax. And, and, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to make emphasis on this particular issue. Again, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari with you every Saturday, 1 to 2 p.m. My guest, Fred uh, Nathan, uh, founder and executive director of Think New Mexico. This issue is extraordinarily important to me because my grandparents raised me on limited funds to supplement their Social Security, if at all. Right. My grandfather had to work till he was 90, nine zero, uh, doing whatever he could, small construction job. I mean, he's a 90-year-old guy, right? Because he only, and, and part of it was his own uh, inability, or he didn't plan his own retirement very well, so he's got to take some responsibility. But he lived on Social Security, and he died with $600 in his pocket. Wow. He died. So think about a man who worked for 90 years or 
80 years, I guess, because he started working. He was like 10 or 12, whatever, and accumulated all that wealth, whatever, and he died with $620 in his, in his finance, in his, uh, you know, in the coffers there. Yeah. And he was always complaining about the fact that, you know, um, that this tax was there. And as That's you mentioned, a- we're only one of few states that tax Social Security. So are you lobbying the legislature as we speak? And you have plans to continue that process of lobbying mm-hmm. and, and, and trying to get that pernicious tax away from New Mexicans? Yes, that's, that's one of our priorities for this upcoming session. We've got about five bills, six bills that we're working on. And it's, it's a tough one. Uh, you know, we, we had about five different bills introduced last session. Some of them didn't get a hearing, the ones in the Senate. In the House, they got a hearing. And, and well, uh, what's the pushback? Because we're a highly blue state, highly democratic state, and most of the Democrats are always with their bleeding hearts saying, oh, we care for old people, we care, you know, maybe they do, I don't know, but that's what they say. You would think this is an obvious issue that really affects directly, you know, people that they say, the Democrats who run the legislature now, yeah. they it, say that's in their wheelhouse. What is the pushback on their on their end? Well, first, in fairness, some of our sponsors are Democrats. Okay. But um, the pushback comes from, I think, the most progressive element who feel like the state doesn't have enough money to provide for all the programs that have been created. And that's their argument. Um, And they're really not in the business of repealing any taxes, is the impression I get. I mean, we ran into this when we repealed the tax on groceries, which was a three-year fight. And we were like, you know, why are we taxing necessities like baby food, vegetables, fruits, um, in a state that's at the top of hunger, yeah. and we ran into the same argument, which is, well, you know, it's it's kind of like the 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 Vietnam general who said, you know, we got to blow up the village to save it. Yeah, and it's like really what they're saying is we want to tax them so we can give it back to them in other government programs. Yeah. And our response to that is the most efficient thing you could do is just not tax it at all, and then people are getting in effect a rebate yeah. in direct proportion to the amount of groceries that they're buying. And same thing with Social Security. It's so counterproductive. And if you put that money back into people's pockets like your grandfather, if they had done it during his lifetime, he would have spent that money immediately on on something useful and positive. services. Yeah, that that generates jobs. Absolutely. Uh, But again, most of these donut-eating politicians are bureaucrats. They, They have never taken an economics class or probably owned a business, I hate to say it, on both sides of the spectrum. So I just wish these legislators, you know, when they just build these policies based on theory and then understand when you actually implement the policy, the consequences of those are often unintended and very pernicious to the people they say they're trying to uh, to benefit. Again, my guest is the executive director and founder of Think New Mexico, Fred Nathan. Let's talk about some of the accomplishments and then we'll we'll talk about some of the things you're trying to accomplish. I, I put the cart before the horse. I apologize with Social Security, but it meant something to me personally. So some of the things that you've recently accomplished through your think tank are making full-day kindergarten accessible to every child in New Mexico. Talk about about that as an accomplishment. Well, that was our first initiative. And, you know, if you want to bring the state up in some of these national rankings, the obvious place to start is education. And we wanted to start then at, uh, at the fact that we only had half-day kindergarten in New Mexico. And in some of the rural parts of New Mexico, 
kids were actually spending, it was a misnomer, a half day was two and a half hours. And we pointed out that in the rural parts of New Mexico, these kids were actually spending more time on the school bus than they were in the classroom. Right. And um, so, and it was interesting, we did some research on just the history of, of kindergarten. And it turns out that it was always a full-day program. Started, the first program was in Wisconsin before the Civil War. And then because of an accident of history, World War II, there was a shortage of teachers. Mm-hmm. So what they went to all over the country is half-day, where a teacher would teach one group of children in the morning and a different group in the afternoon. And uh, during the early 60s, they went back, most states went back to full-day kindergarten, and New Mexico, for whatever reason, didn't. So we came out with a report making the case for it. And what we failed to do initially was to talk about, well, how are we going to pay for this? And um, so it turns out that it was 1% of the general fund, $32.5 million. So I thought, you know, our critics are absolutely right. Shame on us for not, you know, we talked about the benefits, which are obvious. We didn't talk about how to pay for it. So the best report that we've ever done, in my estimation, was a report on how to pay for full-day kindergarten. And so I hired a, a former budget director under Democrats and Republicans, a wonderful guy named John Gasbridge, paid him all of $1,000 to sit down with me for three weeks and a legal pad. And we went through the budget line by line, which was a terrific exercise. And I was looking for programs that were non-essential, duplicative, wasteful, and there was no shortage. We found uh, 22 programs that we highlighted and said, you know, in effect, we're unconsciously, or our legislature is unconsciously making a decision that we're not worthy enough to have full-day kindergarten, but we can have all these ridiculous programs. Like, for example, when you drive into New Mexico from Arizona and and into all of our border areas, we have what are called uh, welcome centers. And the idea is, you know, it's staffed by people from the Department of Tourism. Uh, somebody comes in from out of state, and, and the staff tries to elongate their trip and say, oh, you know, where are you going? Oh, you're going to Albuquerque. Well, if you went a little bit further down south, you could go to White Sands or Carlsbad Caverns or whatever. Now, this particular one in Gallup was put on the wrong side of the highway. You could only access it as you were leaving New Mexico. <laughs> So I got a photo wow. from a friend in Gallup, Joe DiGregorio, and put it in the report, and we renamed it the Goodbye Center and pointed out that they were spending over a million dollars to staff this the, this. But Fred, when place. something is that fundamentally, overtly wrong and incompetent, I mean, how is that not obviously recognized? I mean, you, you okay, so the construction started on a Thursday you know, 29 years ago, on the wrong side of the whatever highway. Jeffrey, it is a great question. I've wondered the same thing, like, how did this happen? And I think what it was was a very well-connected person politically owned this this structure. It happened to be on the wrong side of the highway, and it was about helping out this guy who needed to rent his building, never mind that it was totally wrong for the purpose needed, but that's sometimes how our government works it's just, it's about it's, how, it's astounding the the levels of incompetence by just not connecting fundamental dots together and just making the corrections before they're they're in play before they're implemented but the point is you the incompetence of the the building 
the the fact that it was actually on the wrong side of the highway on the right side of the highway as you're going uh, west to east as opposed to the other way yeah. but you got it corrected we got it corrected but you know and it really helped us um some republicans who were skeptical frankly about full day kindergarten including d johnson the then governor's wife loved it that we had come up with a really um straight talk if you will uh, way of paying for it with, without raising taxes, without expanding the size of government, and saying, "Look, we can just reallocate resources from from wasteful spending to something that will benefit our children in the classroom." Yeah, and and it really, um, you know, I remember Ted Hobbs, who's from Albuquerque, saying to me, "You know, I'm not really sure about full day kindergarten, but I really like the fact that you've been responsible in how to pay for this, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt." Yeah, my guest, Fred Nathan. He is the executive director and founder of Think New Mexico. Uh, this is Jeffrey Candelaria, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. So that issue, I'm sure you did some research when I say you, not you, but your your team, your think tank, about why full day in kindergarten has uh, beneficial overall educational effects as opposed to a half day or, or a less than full day. Actually, to tell you the truth, Jeffrey, we miscalculated. We Our goal and I remember talking to Tim Walsh, who's now running for governor, who's J- Johnson's education person, was just to have kids reach first grade and be able to recognize all the letters of the alphabet and the first 10 numbers. One lovely unintended consequence, because we weren't trying to teach reading, is that consistently year after year, um, about 25% of kids uh, graduate from full-day kindergarten already reading by the time they arrive in in first grade. Now, we still have a lot of work to do on the first grade to 12th grade system, and and then I think some of those benefits dissipate over time. But up to kindergarten, our kids are competing uh, very well nationally. Yeah, that's important. For me, education, you know, because I grew up in a lower, 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 lower middle class socioeconomic strata, but and my, you know my mother died when I was a kid, all that. But my grandparents set expectations for me and my brother that we were going to go to college right off. So we always had that sense of what whatever the hell college is, you know, we're going to go there. And they were involved in our education, even though they themselves had no formal education. They would inquire about homework and did you study and God so, bless them. And and you know that's the part of the equation that most of these donut-eater politicians don't talk about. Families have to, if they're going to have a kid, you have a responsibility economically to the kid or don't have the damn kid, and you also have an education responsible to that kid's education. And I'm damn hard about it and unapologetic because we don't talk about the family, whether it's a single mom, I'm sorry she has to work so hard. Well, guess what? Your kid, if it's going to go to school, you brought them into this world. You've got to participate in that education. It can't just be reliant on the teachers themselves. And I think we put too much stress on the the APSs of the world, the teachers of the world. They're fundamental to that calculation. But these parents have to be part of the raising or the uh, setting expectations and the participation of education. There's my soapbox. I totally Uh, agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, straight talk with Jeffrey Kendler. Another thing that you did that is extremely meaningful is the repeal of the regressive tax on food. Uh, talk about that. I mean, that's incredible. So um, I, I was just astonished to discover that we don't tax horse feed in New Mexico, 
but we were taxing baby food. Wow. And again, uh, thought, well, maybe we should try to do something and get rid of this tax on groceries. And we traced it all the way back. This is fascinating, Jeffrey. Again, we go, we start with the history whenever we look at a problem. And Mississippi, the pioneer state, was the first state to tax, actually to come up with a sales tax. And it was right in the middle of the Depression. And New Mexico was the second state to do this, which is really sort of interesting when you think about the poverty in these two states. And it came in as a in New Mexico as a quote-unquote emergency uh, tax to pay for schools. And it was on everything, not just groceries. And that was we were the second state with the sales tax. And the so-called emergency, which was the Depression, ended let's say around 1945 at the end of World War II. But of course the tax persisted. And here we were in 2003 or 2004 when we were looking at this and saying, first of all, it came in as an emergency tax. We, you know, I'm sure everybody then knew to hold on to their wallet that it wasn't going to get repealed when the emergency ended. But we just looked at how destructive it was, especially to, you know, New Mexico, we have a lot of large families. So those people are paying disproportionately more and as you point out, it's a regressive tax. So the poor, poor folks actually were paying more than the wealthy people yeah. um, because they tend to have larger families. So we, we had the crazy idea of um, repealing that tax, and the legislature then said, the only way you can do this is if you make it revenue neutral. So we came up with the radical idea of raising the taxes on alcohol and tobacco, Every tax, as you know, because you know about economics, does harm. Sure. Those two taxes, though, you could argue at least uh, because children have the least amount of discretionary income will discourage underage drinking, underage smoking. So we put that pill in and we got the most liberal and the most conservative members of the Senate, Manny Aragon and Ramsey Gorham, who actually hated each other personally, but they came together on this. And we got it introduced, and we passed it out of the Senate overwhelmingly and got it out three out of four committees. Anyway, long story short, it took three years, but we finally uh, passed it. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but it seems like every time there's a minor budget crisis, that's the first thing they, they look at and they complain about and say, oh, we should never have let go of this tax on groceries. In fact, they're using that argument now against repealing the tax on Social Security. Um, but those are two things that should never have been taxed in the first place yeah. is our position. Great talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, Executive Director, Founder of Think New Mexico. Fred Nathan is my guest. And again, one of the things I'm learning through this interview is your think tank does serve in, in a lot of ways as kind of a watchdog over dumb, clumsy, uh, pernicious laws, uh, maybe ill-fated consequence. Uh, a policy comes in that sounds good in theory, but when you implement it, like these liberal Democrats, oh, you know, everybody should get a fair wage, and then they tell the small business guy, okay, we're going to raise your your wage uh, from a minimum of eight dollars an hour to twenty, and guess what? The little restaurant does raises prices and cuts staff. Right. So these donut eaters don't understand the implementation of the policy that sounds good in some ethereal, you know, uh, conversation when they're all having their cocktails at the bullring, but when you put it into play, the you know, the ill-fated consequences or something else. And you guys 
or kind of a watchdog over those kinds of things, I imagine. Yeah, thank you for saying that. We, we pride ourselves, you know, our reputation is on the line. So if we come up with an initiative and we're fortunate enough to pass it, it better work the way we said it would. So uh, we're very careful uh, about the topics that we choose. And our goal is always to research it and know it better than anybody in the state. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, once it's passed, we don't just wash our hands of it. We continue to work and work with, you know, who, whoever is responsible in government for implementing it to make sure that these laws get implemented correctly. Yeah, no, I get it. And it's important to me because I'm a very practical guy and I'm always very wary, and I'm a cynical person as well, of policies that sound good, but when they're implemented over the, over the first year to five years to ten years, how did that actually play out in real life and in real time? So the, uh, just to give you one example, when we passed the full-day kindergarten law, you know, we were hearing things and there were anecdotes about maybe the teaching wasn't at the level that it should be. And sure enough, there was no professional development for teaching the science of learning, of, of, of reading. Um, and so we pulled together the best people we could find and, and had... Uh, professional development classes in Albuquerque, and we paid for teachers from Raton and all over New Mexico, Silver City, Lordsburg, to, you know, all, all that we needed to know is they were teaching full day kindergarten, and we said, look, we will pay for you, we'll put you up in a hotel, we'll pay for your gas, we'll pay for your food, if you'll simply come to Albuquerque for a day of professional development to hear from some of the most important uh, experts in your field. And we got them, and and I think that, that that's contributed to the success of that program. And one of the things that you as a think tank are looking and earmarking to accomplish, and it's, it's related, there's a correlation here, there's an extrapolation of kindergarten, now your middle school financial literacy, or the lack thereof in our state. I mean, the average person graduates, if they do graduate, because there's 30% non-grad or gradu- or non-graduation rates in certain high schools in Albuquerque, can't balance a checkbook, don't know what a credit score is. And all those things, whether we like it or not, folks, last I checked, you still have to have a checking account somewhere in your life mm-hmm. and a credit card somewhere in your life, and you better understand how to balance a, you know, a, a, a checkbook or your budget. And, and that's why these, these uh, unlawful people in banking 20 years ago were, were selling mortgages without explaining that your adjusted, uh, you know, your mortgage is going to adjust to your disadvantage in five years. And by the way, it's going to go up $380 a month, that kind of thing. But the point is, we still have to be, as individuals, accountable to our own budgets, our own economic situations. And the financial literal, literal literacy piece that's missing in New Mexico is an objective thing New Mexico is looking to to make happen. Is that's that correct? Ex- that's exactly right. We were working on the issue of predatory lending. You know, in New Mexico, you can charge up to 175% on a small loan. And we were thinking, you know, one thing is, is to cap those rates, but maybe we need to look at this holistically. And part of the problem is the, what, the, the lack of knowledge around free market economics and around financial literacy. And we looked around the country and we were astonished that 17 states in the last decade have passed a requirement. So this is something that's catching on nationally. And here we are in New Mexico, 47th in financial literacy. About a quarter of our adult population is unbanked, meaning they're, 
they're keeping their money under a mattress. Right. And um, so we thought, let, let's just put this out there. We really didn't have the time to lobby it last year, but we were astonished at how quickly it caught on. We passed it out of the House 65 to nothing, went to Senate education, passed it unanimously, and then it went down to the Senate floor, and, and they never got around to hearing it. Um, this year we hired an education reform director, who I just want to tout because I think he's a listener, among other things, uh, Abenicio Baldonado, uh, first in his family to go to college, graduate of Robertson High in Las Vegas, um, went on to Highlands, got a master's in public policy and an undergraduate degree, then became a public school teacher. Um, and I don't have that in my background, so he's a lot more credible than I am uh, in talking to teachers. Then he became uh, a charter school board member. Then he became chairman of the board of that charter school, so he can talk to the school boards association, very influential in education policy in Santa Fe. And then um, worked at the public education department where he's the legislative liaison. So this is now part of his portfolio to figure out how do we get this to the finish line. And he's already working. uh, The social studies standards just came out. And we've asked the Department of Education to look at financial literacy. And that should be in our standards. But it's not. It's a basic life skill. Yes. Okay. It's a fundamental. Whether we like it or not, folks, in the final analysis, you know, somewhere down the line, you've got to understand how a mortgage works or, or how interest works or how, you know, balancing a checkbook works or putting a budget together works. Because at some point you're going to rent a, an apartment or buy a house or whatever the hell you're going to do. If you don't know, there are people that will take advantage of you, right? Yeah. Predators will take advantage of you. I was in the banking industry, and I'll tell you, Wells Fargo, okay, mm-hmm. I'm saying it out loud, yeah. took advantage of millions of people across the country that did not understand that their their accounts weren't free, and they were going to have you know they were going to have all these ancillary of uh, percentages that were going to be tied to your account. I mean that's that's predatory you know banking right there. And right. unless we're savvy enough to understand and ask the right questions, yes, we can be subject to all kinds of uh, of legitimate scams. I mean these are legitimate scams, right? I mean yes. Until recently, you're saying 128 percent, 175 percent. On a $500 loan. Which was legal. Which it, was it's legal. legal right now. Yeah, it's legal now. That's something you're working yeah. on. Yeah, and we think those rates should be more like 36%. In, in 2003, uh, President George W. Bush was told by his military leaders that they had a national security crisis because so many service people were being preyed upon by these predatory lenders. And you know, partly, they weren't really paid enough by the federal government, but that's another issue. And it was, you know, compromising the security of the country because these people were so deeply in debt that our enemies, you know, could find out things from these people or bribe them. So uh, the Congress, Democrats and Republicans came together and said, uh, let's pass a military fair lending act and not allow on these small loans a rate higher than 36 percent. And after that passed, a lot of states started doing the same thing. I wish Congress had said why don't we do this for every American? So, you know, just to give your, your listeners uh, just a, an example, so you go in for a $400 loan for a year. At 175%, you're paying a, uh, $700 of interest on your $400 loan. And that just keeps people, you know, pinned to the ground yeah. and not able to lift themselves up. But in their desperation, they need that money now to make a payment on their home, to feed their kids, whatever. 
which again, they have to be responsible for their own lives. Maybe they shouldn't have had a kid or bought a too big a home, but at the same time, you know, there's a desperation factor, and that's where these predators take advantage of. Their they take urgency. advantage, and and the credit unions in New Mexico, which interestingly were started by business people because they were worried about loan sharks preying on their employees, so they're nonprofit banks essentially. They make these small loans right now for much less than even 36%. Yeah. But they're not getting the word out. So if you're listening and you find yourself in this situation where you need a small loan to get by, please check with your local credit union first before you go to one of these payday or predatory lenders. Yeah, and if you're a small business, some of the micro-loan entities uh, like uh, community loan, micro-loan entities can do the same kind of thing. And they'll take... They have an appetite for collateral that traditional banks don't. That's right. So they, so they might take your horse, you know, or they might take your tractor and give it collateral. Uh, at any rate, we're, we're moving on to some other things because I want to touch on another thing that's extremely important. Something you did accomplish as well is transparency because New Mexico has a lot of suspicion for health care. I do. I do. Maybe growing up as I did, I was suspicious. And... Uh, I felt like I, I was taken advantage of, but, you know, a $30 aspirin when I go to a hospital. But one of the things you did accomplish at Think New Mexico is more transparency when people are, are having to engage with a hospital situation, right? That's, that's exactly right. And this is not a new idea. This is not something that we thought up, uh, but something that we noticed that was beginning to happen in other states. And this was right around the time of Obamacare. And, you know, Obamacare... I, I don't I don't understand exactly what they were thinking by raising the um, deductibles that you pay. Yeah. And the idea was, I guess, that you would be more selective if you had more skin in the game. And I think economically that's correct. But they didn't think it through in the sense that you can only do that. You can only shop around if you know what the cost is of these various uh, procedures, you know, a knee replacement, a hip replacement just a colonoscopy and so that's why i think you know there's been so much controversy around uh, obama uh, obamacare and so what we just said is okay if we're going to go to these higher deductibles shouldn't we give patients the ability to know what these procedures cost so that they can shop around and it's so it just seems so fundamental because in every other part of our economy uh, we would never um, tolerate uh, a retailer saying, well, I'm not going to tell you, you know, do you want to buy this product or this service, but we're not going to tell you what it costs. But for some reason in healthcare, that's okay. Yeah. Um, so we did get it through. Again, bipartisan support, Democrats and Republicans. We showed they could work together. And, it, you know, just so basic and so fundamental. It's been very difficult, though, to get from the hospitals the data and we're now just beginning to get it, but pretty soon we're going to be announcing this website where you can go and look up the cost of any basic medical procedure at any one of our 44 hospitals in New Mexico. And what we, I don't know how many people will use it, but I'm pretty sure the hospitals will check their pricing and say, wait a second, are we out of line? Yeah, you want, it, it brings competition. Free market competition, which we've never which had in healthcare is, since is, 1948, which is extremely healthy. And at some point, you know, I, I wish the healthcare system would also reward people that take their own fitness uh, more seriously. 
because you've got a lot of obese people walking around, and, you know, it's probably their fault that they ate too many French fries all their lives. They're having all these heart attacks, and it's expensive. And nobody talks about that. But people also need to be much more responsibility. I should be running for office here. You, you should. Uh, well, but I tell the truth. Straight talk with Jeffrey Kettler like idiot gone. And sometimes people don't like... Have you ever stood in front of a, a mirror naked? People don't do it. You know why? Because that's all they are physically. Yeah. And yeah. it's hard to do. On Straight Talk with Jeffrey, Candelaria, I try to put myself naked in these issues, naked before us, and talk about responsibility on all sides of the construct. So a fat person's fat because they ate too many French fries. And they have health issues because they're fat. At the same time, they might be desperate because they're lower middle class. They have a lot of expense. It's a very complicated issue, but there's, there's responsibility on all parts of that calculus. And that's what we talk about on this show. Yeah, and this is probably the wrong metaphor, but we really need to use carrots and not sticks to encourage people to live healthier lifestyles, and it could save everybody a lot of money. Unfortunately, carrots don't taste as good as French fries. Yeah. And we all have lust, including myself, for, for, those French fries. for pizza and French fries. Okay, we're, we're moving on. I can't believe how this time has elapsed here. We'll have you could always have, have me back. back. I yeah. can't. I, yeah. I will. So I want to talk about the mechanism by which you actually lobby. So you have a board. How many board members do you have? We have 11 right now. Okay. We're aiming for 12. 11, and you're, you're nonpartisan. We Democrats and Republicans. We have a former Republican governor, a former Democratic yeah. attorney general. Yeah. So. so who brings these issues to you? And then do you, I imagine you prioritize them, and then you come up with a strategy. Like one of the things you're going to be working on is, uh, uh, well, the repealing of Social Security. Somebody brought that to your attention. It's pretty obvious. And then you put a strategy behind it, and then you, lo- are you the lobbyist? Or how does, how does that apparatus work to so actually affect change at the legislative? It, it the is legislative. a great question. And we finally decided to ta- tackle Social Security because whenever I do public speaking, I always ask the audience, you know, we, you know, we want to hear from you. What, what, what do you think should be, you know, we should be addressing? The number one thing for 22 years has been, could you do something about this ridiculous double tax on Social Security income? Okay. So uh, we took, um, we actually made it larger. We looked at just retirement security in New Mexico. Um, so it was a number of things. And the, the short answer, Jeffrey, is that the staff works up, like three proposals we take that to the board made up of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Um, and by the way, several people from Albuquerque, who I should mention, I have a terrific board. Roberta Cooper Ramo from the module firm is the chair of the board. Uh, Edward Lujan, who used to be chairman of the Republican Party and head of the uh, Manuel Lujan Insurance Agency is on the board. Jackie Baca, he's a Republican. Jackie's a Democrat. Jackie Baca, Bueno Foods the number one uh, manufacturing company actually in New Mexico. Yeah. So anyway, it's a group of statesmen and stateswomen, and they vet these ideas. And I kind of know, because they're across the political spectrum, that if we've got agreement there, that that's a good sign that maybe we can get it to the finish line with the legislature. We look for things that are big enough to make a difference, small enough to be politically achievable. And then, yes, to your question, the staff of Think New Mexico lobbies this ourselves. We draft our own legislation. We identify the sponsors. We always look for a Democrat and Republican in the House and the Senate. And then we just get after it. And frankly, we rely a lot on on the media um, because we don't have an advertising budget. So 
I'm I'm at your beck and call during the session. If you need any, you know, if you've got any dead time, I'd love to come back and talk about, you know, what we've got cooking in the legislature. And at some point I want to talk about actually how the lobbying mechanism works. Meaning you, you talk to a Republican who says they'll they'll espouse or sponsor the bill, you talk to a Democrat, and then the process by which it moves forward. I I'm fascinated by that. I think our listeners are too, because I don't think people understand how a bill actually gets gets made we'll talk about that another time one of the other things you are working on is um, maximizing dollars to the classroom that's that's an issue talk about what that means so um it's astonishing we did a study we were just curious because you know just reading the headlines of of our newspapers you know just just the other day uh aps settled a lawsuit for six hundred thousand dollars because they wouldn't comply with the uh, public inspection of public records act request and, and this was something that should have been turned over to the media that wasn't and over a long period of time so anyway we, you know you read about all this as you know um, misspending of taxpayer dollars especially to education so we just just because we were curious we looked at how, how we looked at all 89 school districts over a 10 year period to see how fast central office administration grew during that period and how fast classroom spending, teacher salaries and things like that. We were astonished that in 61 of 89 school districts, administrative spending grew faster than classroom spending. Yeah. So uh, well, the bureaucracy is becoming bloated and prodigious and ineffective to actually what it's what was designed for, which is actually a teacher in front of a kid you know, challenging the kid's mind and cultivating a curious, a curious mind and critical thinking. So the bureaucracy has just grown exponentially. Is what you what you're finding? We, we found that, and 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 then there's just this assumption that if we, and and I'm I'm sure this will resonate with your listeners. If we just spend more, things will get better. It's actually not the way it works. And if you look at all 50 states, there's not a correlation between the states that are spending the most and the states that have the highest educational achievement levels. It really matters, um, and we learned this by going to two school districts, Gadsden and Texaco, New Mexico. And what they realize is it's not about the overall number. It's about how much of it you're getting to the classroom. Texaco is a great example. Texaco is in the top consistently of the 89 districts. It's in the top 10 on, on reading and math proficiency. Um, Top five for graduation rates. Graduation rates can be games, so we can talk about that later. But um, And then these kids are not only excelling in the classroom. They've been in, like, the national um, future farmers of America. Uh, their sports teams are awesome and, and, and win at state disproportionately. So we were interested in what's the secret sauce out there. And I thought initially, well, it must be a very wealthy district, and, and maybe we'll see something in the census data, you know, that it, maybe it's like Los Alamos or something. Not at all. They're actually about $10,000 between the mean income, lower than the mean income in New Mexico. So now we were just drooling to go out to Texaco, New Mexico, just over the border from Texas, as you might imagine. And, you know, I, I've probably gone on too long, but just... When we went out there, we talked to everybody. We talked to school board members, the superintendent, teachers, students. And the overwhelming thing that, that I'll never forget is when we got out there, um, we were met 
by the superintendent himself, and he only had one employee. Then you contrast that with APS. Now, it's a bigger district than APS, but you'd have to cut the APS administration by a factor of three to get... I mean, they their philosophy, and it was from the superintendent down to the school board members that I talked to, is it's all about the kids. Yeah. We're here for the kids. We're, we're not running a jobs program here. And so they get all their resources from the state. They just send it right down to the classroom, and it's reflected in the results. Trade Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m., 1600 a.m. Tell your friends. Uh, you will not hear platitudes on this show, I promise you. Executive Director and Founder of Think New Mexico is my guest. I would think a sociologist might have something to say about that because, you know, studies demonstrate agrarian versus urban, completely different expression of the human condition. So 100, 200 years ago, 98% of America lived in ranches, on farms. Today, it's almost a reverse. I'm exaggerating. Exactly right. No, 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 you're right. But the point is, studies have shown, sociology has shown, that when you're in agrarian situations, you tend to be more self-reliant, self a little bit more accountable, pragmatic, practical. And so it doesn't surprise me that they're not going to tolerate huge behemoth bureaucracies because it serves no purpose. That's, that's exactly right. And I'll tell you something else. This is an example of... I'd be we, on your board. Yeah. <laughs> this is an example of, of, of something where we had a hy- hypothesis, and a lot of people look at the public education system and say, why do we have 89 school districts? Do we really need 89 school districts? And a lot of people say, let's consolidate. You know, Some of these school districts have 50 kids. Let's consolidate them. And we were on that train until we looked at the educational outcomes and we noticed that, that some of these smaller school districts, in fact, m- almost all of them, had very high graduation, very high proficiency rates. And we thought, why would we want to mess with those? Those are not the districts that are broken. It's right. these very large districts like APS, frankly, um, which should be um, deconsolidated. Yeah, absolutely. It almost reminds me of, a car built before, let's say, 1976 when the catalytic converter and all the computers were introduced, you would open a hood, you could see the carburetor, you could see the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the pieces that make up the engine. And they were easily accessible to the mechanic or you if you wanted to work on tweaking your engine. Today you open up a hood of a modern vehicle, it's like the bureaucracy at APS. Yeah. You can't even see the damn engine. Where's the carburetor? Where, and because there's so much stuff there. You know, that, that's such a good analogy, and I'm going to borrow that. Great talk with Jeffrey yeah. Candelaria. Yeah, we, <laughs> we can't have you on the board. We need you here in the media right. talking to La Gente. But, but here's the thing, you know, you ask yourself, I think a lot of people have asked themselves in the wake of this scandal involving uh, Representative uh, William Stapleton, who allegedly stole $5 million dollars that should have gone to the classroom over 14 years. And APS, with all these employees, nobody noticed that? Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's millions of dollars over time. Yeah, 14 years. It wasn't years. like a one-time thing, and it was very covert. You could maybe hide that. But, I mean, it was, it was like almost a process of, of milking the system if allegedly that did happen. Right. But it sounds like there's preponderant, at least, uh, evidence that that indeed may be the case. But your point, the, the machine is so big, you can hide yes. pernicious activity That's right. inside that jungle called this 
convoluted behemoth thing called bureaucracy. And you can't do that in Texaco, New Mexico, or in Gadsden, New Mexico. They, they try to keep their administration to the absolute minimum so they can get more dollars to teachers. The other thing that really bothers me about these prodigious bureaucracies is these people are not accountable. The teacher's accountable. The principal might be accountable, but the bureaucrat's not. That's right. Accountable. We didn't elect them, you mm-hmm. know, and we can't access them, whoever those bureaucrats are. That's what's astounding to me. That's what's happening in the uh, industrial complex. I think Eisenhower yes. warned us 70 years ago about the mass industrial the complex. Military to, to industrial be, complex. To, to be very wary of that, of that evil mechanism that we, that's not accountable. So we only have about a few minutes left. Something that we didn't touch on that you think we should highlight, Fred, there's so much more material. Uh, maybe another accomplishment that you, you might be proud of, I'm sure you are, is making the state's infrastructure spending more transparent by revealing legislative sponsors on every capital project. So what was kind of happening prior to that, transparency? So this is the, the story of the Christmas tree bill. And about 47 years ago, um, Back then, you know, if you wanted to build a bridge, you put in a bill to build the bridge and you had a revenue source. And then somebody got the great idea, what if they had about 25 bills circulating that year. What if we pull them all together and put them in one gigantic bill and make it so every legislator can bring something home to their district? And that's when the Christmas tree bill concept was born. And it's been going strong ever since. And so fast forward to today and... For example, in a recent session, every representative got $2 million. Every senator got $3 million to spend in their sole discretion. Sole discretion. Sole discretion. No, no pre-vetting of ideas, no uh, accountability on the back end. And so you get this sort of grab bag of, of projects, some of them very, very good, actually, and some of them not even infrastructure. You know, so we're in a state with crumbling roads, bridges, dams, and occasionally there will be a project for uh, a robotic dinosaur or zoo animals in Clovis or a doggy drinking fountain. And by the way, I'm pro-dogs. I've got one of my own. Um, but a $200,000 doggy drinking fountain in Las Cruces. And you can just read through the capital outlay bill every year, and it's got too many of these projects. So we thought, first of all, it shouldn't be a secret from taxpayers who's putting these projects in. That was a six-year fight that we just got to the finish line, thanks to Matthew McQueen. So that two hundred thousand dollars drinking fountain for dogs—I love dogs myself. Some legislator had the discretion, without accountability, to just spend it on that absurd, you know, item, without being, without his or her name being attached to that. That's exactly right. So they 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 all come up with their list. They give it to the council service that drafts one big bill. So you don't know. And, and that really defeats the whole process of a legislature because in some cases, if you went to that legislator and you said, you know, that museum that you're building, nobody will come uh, to it. You know, maybe you should put it over here instead. They're deprived of that information. So it's hard to legislate in an environment like that. And sometimes they can be their own worst enemies if they're not getting uh, any input from the public or other elected officials like mayors and county commissioners can say, you know, we really don't need um, that project, but we're, you know, we absolutely need a clean uh, drinking water facility here instead. 
and what you're building, you know, a new senior citizen center, we have enough of those. And if you do that, then we're going to have to find in our budget money for heating and cooling. By the way, this isn't uh, just a random example. I've heard this over and over again. They like to spend money on the senior citizen centers because, frankly, uh, those people vote. And it's nice if, and the voting booths are located in those senior citizen centers. So they, they ask for new senior citizen centers that we don't always need. Yeah. So, so we want to pivot now from making this uh, transparent to also making it a merit-based system so, like other states do. Pretty much every other state delegates these decisions to experts. The legislature says, look, here are our priorities. Water, um, we want to uh, improve the infrastructure, broadband, and rank these projects based on is there matching money from the federal or local government? Is there urgency? Is it a health and safety issue? And they get ranked. And that's what we need in New Mexico. And for a poor state, we can't afford to be spending any more money on doggy drinking fountains and robotic dinosaurs. We've got to be spending money on roads and bridges and dams and broadband. Well, if you bring more consequence and transparency, that person who was going to earmark the $200,000 doggy stand would be more reticent of doing that. Absolutely. Because there's a certain shame and absurdity to attaching my name to that silly, absurd, you know, structure. I did get accused of that that was my purpose is to shame. I would say really more it's, it's about accountability. Well, that I, if you're not willing to put your name behind a project, then maybe you shouldn't be spending taxpayers' a, money. Shame is a function of accountability. I mean, people are going to do things to avoid shame. That's just the, that's the human condition. Don't apologize yeah. for that. This is Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. By the way, New Mexico is one of the only legislators where they're not paid. And there's an interesting theory that says that if you're not paid and you're a legislator, you by definition have the time, the resources, and the wealth to do that. So perhaps there's some odd design that our legislatures is almost like the old Roman Republic during the time of Augustus and Julius Caesar. Only that senatorial body was wealthy enough and had enough land to be on the Senate. Any thoughts on that? I know I digress. Uh, well, I'm, I'm in favor, of absolutely, of paying our legislators. But, I mean, to, the other side of it is actually legislators do get a very generous pension. So that needs to be brought up in this conversation and taken into account when we're deciding how much to pay legislators. Um, I think that program vests after five years. Yeah. could be wrong about that. And it's fully the pension. That so think about what we're saying, though. I don't mean to interrupt. This is yeah. important. I don't know that the average New Mexican has even considered that our legislature is not paid. That's and can right. you can you afford whoever you is listening? Can you afford three to four months out of your life and spending all that time in Santa Fe unless you have wealth and resource? So are we run by legislators that are by definition more of aristocracy and more elite? And if we are. Is that okay with you, whoever you is? And, again, these are questions that we don't ask these obvious elephant-in-the-room questions enough, in my view. You're absolutely right. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, and, the legis and legislators are very open about this, and they say when they look around the room, it's disproportionately uh, retirees yep. and, and disproportionately more wealthy. Yep. And it's really not representative of the state, and that's why I think it's just really critical that we pay them you know we talk about a, a living wage or a fair wage or minimum wage our legislators really they just get a per diem which is about two hundred dollars a day 
and and they've got a generous pension on the back end, but uh, and they work really hard. I yeah, mean, I'm not people demeaning, don't realize. I'm not demeaning yeah. them, but we yeah. really, in my view, don't have an eclectic, diverse enough population that represents us in in the policy making part. And the reason that's important is, even though you know I came from South Broadway and my mother was dead and all that, growing up in that blighted area gave me a sense of, and a sensibility to some of these people that are on the street or are uh, desperate to make a mortgage payment. Whereas an elitist banker from Roswell, who's our legislator, has been there for 85 years, uh, eating, eating donuts all day, that person has never seen the underbelly of life. And so what he or she makes a policy maybe doesn't understand how it will really play out on South Broadway on a Thursday night when you're not around. That's right. We would all benefit, I think, from a much more diverse legislature for that reason that you just said. Absolutely. All right, uh, Fred, uh, my producer saying we've got a couple of minutes left. Is there something we didn't touch on that you'd like to touch on, something that you've accomplished or something that you're earmarking as Think New Mexico to accomplish? Uh, what did we not touch on? What, what, one last issue that we're going to be working on this session is reforming the public, um, public uh, retirement association uh, uh, board. This is a, a board that most of your listeners probably never heard of. They oversee $17 billion of pensions for public employees, both current and retired. And, uh, that, and it's about 90,000 people. So like nearly 4 or 5% of the state. And uh, unfortunately, when it was created, nobody put into the statute that um, a background in finance and investments should be required. Fast forward to 2021, and the board is completely dysfunctional. Uh, we have up on our website a seven-minute debate where the the board is debating the quality of snacks that they're served uh, by staff, as opposed to the $17 billion that they're overseeing that's in you know equities, bonds, uh, venture capital, private equity, and they, they right now they. Uh, and the, the journal did a great story on this. Their executive director, their chief investment officer, their general counsel are, are all interim. So anyway, we'd like to reform that board to put people who are more qualified on it. And if you're not a public employee, you think, well, that's their problem. Actually, it's all of our problem because if that fund goes belly up, it doesn't even actually need to go belly up if it's just further underfunded. It's about 60 or 70% funded right now. And if it gets too much lower... The only place they can go is to the taxpayers. So it's really critical that we pass that bill in this upcoming session uh, to get some more qualified uh, people on that board. So the session, is it a 30? Is it a 60? It's a 30. Uh, okay, so it's a abbreviated session. Very hard to pass a bill in a 30-day session because it's yeah. just a, it's a sprint, all-out sprint. And does it rotate every year? Is that kind of how that works, the 30 to 60? Or is it yes. contingent on... You know, what the, nece- the the need of the state is or any of yeah, that? Yeah, it, 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 it goes back to something you were talking about earlier about, uh, you know, back in statehood, we were a much more agricultural economy here yep. in New Mexico. So it's really built around an agricultural schedule. Um, so it's, you know, January, third week in January to the third week in February in a 30-day session yeah. and the third week in March in a 60-day I think session. one of the worst things we did, and I know I'm going to get criticized for saying it, but was calling our state New Mexico and attaching the word Mexico to it because there's just so much baggage to that country 
And had we named ourselves something other than New Mexico, more people would know we were here because half the country doesn't know we exist. Right. And called ourselves something like Arizona, called yeah. themselves Arizona. Whatever. Well, Arizona was taken. Or actually, we came in at the same time. Well, I know. I understand that. But I'm just saying the word Mexico has a lot of baggage. And most of it is negative. <laughs> Don't get mad. Eddie likes that. Eddie, out of going. Maybe. Yeah, I once did a show. I should. Uh, I don't know where I'm coming in on this. I'm just picking up. I did a show on renaming the state of New Mexico. Yeah. And uh, so there's, uh, if you don't mind me. No, I don't. No. Are you okay with this? Okay, so I did, uh, the show was focused on what should we rename it. And we came up with the name Zia. Uh, yeah, the, I the, like it. And the reason why, it's already reflective yeah. and it's descriptive of what it. our flag is. We don't have to change it. Uh, I think it honors our Native American traditions. Uh, it puts us at a place that's identifiable. There's no other state that starts with a Z, um, but it was also the last letter of the alphabet. That was the only uh, uh, detractor of all of that. It'd also be the shortest name. It would be even shorter than Ohio. I love it. And I think it would really encompass like all of our traditions at the same time because we do have the two reflective colors, and we get to keep our state flag. I love it. And I think it honors both Native traditions, and we get to keep the yellow and the red, which come, of course, from the Spanish flag. So I thought it was a, a pretty involved conversation, and I think we should uh, open it up. I'd like up. to revisit that. Yeah, I think I'll, it's good. I'll, I'll uh, sponsor that, Bill. Again, <laughs> yeah. uh, Fred Nathan, it has been a pleasure to have you. Obviously, there's so much more material to cover. You understand how this show works. It's not a nonsensical show. I talk about these issues, and I dissect them unapologetically. Thank you, Eddie Otagon, for producing Straight Talk with... Uh, Jeffrey Kendler, your contact information, Fred. Uh, www.thinknewmexico, written out as one word, .org. And thank you for having me on Straight Talk. We could use a lot more Straight Talk in this state when we talk about these <laughs> issues. So that. delighted to be here. And it is Think New Mexico. That is a very, I got the annual every year. I get the annual from, there it is. There That's it is. the latest one. I get one every yeah, year and, and it, I have them all. If you want more information about any of these things that we've discussed, just go to our website and you can download some of these reports. And if you're interested in knowing more about us, we'll send you an annual report and, and you can just call us at 505-992-1315. Eddie and I will have you on post-legislation. Uh, legislation. How about pre, before, right before the session? I love it. So we'll serve the pre salad. Pre and post. We'll serve the salad before wow. the... Uh, How about a brand new show, Think New Mexico? We'll serve the salad before the entree. Thank you, Eddie Otagon, for producing Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Have a great remainder of your weekend.